I've been asked this afternoon to answer three questions. When does marriage begin? When does a marriage end? And when may a formerly married person remarry? I'm going to try to offer the biblical answers to those questions, and that could easily take an hour, but we'll confine it to the time we have to the best of my ability. Let's begin. When does a marriage begin? There are three fairly commonly held viewpoints on this. One is that God considers a man and woman married once they become legally married. That is, when they are a husband and wife in the eyes of the law. Another position holds that a man and woman are married in God's eyes when they have completed some kind of formal wedding ceremony involving covenantal vows. Thirdly, a more common position perhaps is that God considers a man and woman to be married at the moment they engage in sexual intercourse. I find upon research and reflection that there is some truth in some of these viewpoints, but the whole truth is in none of them. Let's examine them and see what the Bible reveals. Number one, marriage begins when a couple is legally married. The rationale for this is Romans 13, where we are told, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. So, Paul says we're to obey the laws of the land, and the laws of the land say a marriage happens when thus and so is in place, whatever the laws of the particular state and country may be. 1 Peter 2.17, Peter said, Honor the king. So the apostle of the Jews and the apostle of the Gentiles have both said we need to honor the government. So, case closed. The government says you're married once whatever the government says has happened. But there are some problems with giving this kind of power to the government and to the laws of the land. First of all, marriage existed before there was ever any human government to regulate or or uh, license it. So could you not get married before there was government? Clearly not. Secondly, even today, there are some countries that have no governmental recognition to marriage and they have no legal requirements for it. So must you go to another country to get married? Certainly not. And thirdly, some governments have created unbiblical requirements for a marriage to be legally recognized. Even in 2019, there are countries in this world that require weddings to be held in a Catholic church in accordance with Catholic teachings and overseen by a Catholic priest. If you are a Christian, can you abide by those laws? There's no way in the world you could do that and honor God. So you're going to have to find a way to get married in your country that is in violation of the laws of the government. This was during, this was the case during that 1260 years. It's still the case today. We are ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. So there has to be a way for Christians to get married in those places without regardless of what the law says. And fourthly, if the government decides when a marriage begins, then what do you do when the government starts saying that marriage can happen between people of the same gender? Do we buy that? Well, we don't buy that. Why don't we? Because it's in violation of what God has said. So the question really is, what does God say about when a marriage begins? He doesn't say it begins when the government says so. But we'll answer that in just a moment. Viewpoint number two is that marriage begins when a couple has completed a ceremony involving vows of some kind. And some of the arguments to this, I'm, I'm smiling a little bit. If you believe this, please know my response is not meant personally. But Genesis 2.22, we're told that God brought Eve to Adam. And that's when he saw her, of course, and 
called her what she was, that she was going to be a woman because she was taken out of man. And they've argued, well, see, God brought the woman to the man. That's why even today the father of the bride brings her to the husband. God was instituting a wedding ceremony at Eden. And then, of course, Jesus performed his first miracle where? At a wedding. So Jesus was putting his stamp of approval on wedding ceremonies. Well, wait a minute here. There is nothing in Genesis chapter 2 to suggest that what God was doing was a ceremony. There's nothing in the context to suggest that. And any Google search for just a moment will reveal that this whole notion that the father bringing the bride to the husband is somehow rooted in Eden. You'll be disavowed of that notion very quickly. This is not connected back to Genesis 2. And yeah, Jesus attended a wedding. But are we going to take everything that Jesus participated in as evidence that he commands that thing to be done? We're not going to go down that road either. No, that's not when marriage begins. Well, God, or John, marriage begins with the sexual union. Sexual intercourse constitutes marriage. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So John, becoming one flesh is the final seal on a marriage covenant, and it is what consummates, that is, finalizes the marriage. And there may be many in this room who hold this view. I don't believe this view accords with the Bible. And if you are resistant to that, I'd ask you to just hear me out. Hear the word of God out. If the sexual union creates a marriage, that means there is no such thing as premarital sex. It would be impossible. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 makes it very clear that there is such a thing as premarital sex. Because of our bodily desires, let each man have his own wife and each wife have her own husband. So that you don't engage in the sexual act outside of marriage, before marriage. If sex creates marriage, it would be impossible to do that. If the sexual union creates a marriage, it would mean that one who is sexually promiscuous is either a polygamist, perhaps Married to thousands of women. I mean, some of these rock stars, we don't need to go into the details, but they, I mean, you take that view. He's been married to thousands of women all at the same time or one right after the other. Is that what we believe? Furthermore, Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman would make no sense. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 18, You have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now, what? Is not your husband. You're living under the same roof, you're sharing the same bed, but you are not husband and wife. If sex creates marriage, it would be impossible for the Lord to say that. Notice also, what was Joseph told by the angel in a dream? Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the angel told Joseph, take Mary, your wife. And they had not shared the bed. And in Matthew 1, 19, Joseph is told, we are told by the Holy Spirit that Joseph was her husband. And when he found out she was with child and he knew it wasn't by him, he thought she'd been unfaithful. So he was considering doing what? Putting her away, which means what? Divorcing her. And I know it means divorce because in Matthew chapter 19, verse 7, the Pharisees asked the Lord, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? You can't divorce someone you're not married to. The Bible says that Mary was his wife. He was her husband. And if they, and that 
there was going to need to be a divorce for them to no longer be in that status. Now, someone might say, well, but John, we're talking about a bunch of legal stuff here. The Jews just practiced betrothal. So, you know, they were they were husband and wife in kind of this betrothal sense, but they weren't really, truly husband and wife. Well, how would that work? Is the scriptures calling them husband and wife, and they're going to have to go through the biblical procedure of divorce? And even if you do just want to argue, well, they're just betrothed, which they were, the Bible says betrothal is marriage. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. You have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. If you're a Christian, you are married to someone else. Who is that? To him who was raised from the dead. The bride of Christ is even now married to the groom. Now, the wedding feast is yet to come when the marriage, a new dimension will be added to the marriage, but the marriage already exists. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul said to the Corinthians, I've betrothed you to one husband. To betroth you is to create a marriage. He is your husband. The church is his wife. And so not surprisingly, when Paul starts talking about how a husband and a wife are to relate, what does he say? Ephesians 5.32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the, because they are husband and wife. Even though the wedding feast hasn't yet occurred, even though there's one dimension that the marriage will yet bring, even though that's not here yet, it doesn't change the fact there is a marriage. So there's marriage before the sexual union. When does marriage begin? Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what God says. She is the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant is a compact. It is an agreement between two or more parties based on promises that each has made to the other in good faith. My wife became my wife and I became her husband when we engaged in the making of a covenant. And God prescribes no particular procedure by which that is to be accomplished. The way a covenant works, it's going to need to be communicated somehow, verbally, written form, through signing, whatever is required. But it needs to be communicated. It needs to be communicated in good faith that we are going to be husband and wife. And yes, since the laws of our country say that heterosexual marriage takes place, in order to have that, you need to have a license. We need to obey the laws of the land. There's no reason right now for us to reject the laws of the land on that. So we can obey God and we can obey the laws of the land simultaneously. I'll go ahead and get the license because that's what the law says to do and I'll be in harmony with man's laws. And then the marriage begins when the covenant is made. We walk out the door of the church building married. That's why everybody's clapping. We're married. And a new dimension of that marriage will become, will come later. The man shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Does there have to be a ceremony? Not technically, but in Missouri, there's supposed to be some kind of efficient at work. He's got to write the thing down on the license and all that. So we want to conform to the law where it's required. But every state's different. I was blown away to learn that in Colorado, I had a rather long conversation with a lawyer on the phone over this issue to just find out exactly what Colorado law was on this. In Colorado, all the state requires is if you both say you're married and you truly share your possessions, 
you are married. Well, we can argue about the wisdom of that law, but that's the law. If two people have made a covenant with each other, and that's all the rest of the law requires, they are married. She is your wife by covenant. When does a marriage end? When one of the spouses dies. Romans 7, 2, and 3. The woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. The marriage is ended, and she may remarry if her spouse dies. Till death do us part. But concerning the remarriage, what does the scripture say? A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, 1 Corinthians 7.39, she is at liberty to to marry, pardon me, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only what? In the Lord. In the Lord. God wants Christians to marry Christians. And so the remarriage is perfectly acceptable if she's a widow or he's a widower, but they do need to marry a Christian. Are there any other circumstances under which a marriage can end? And a previously married person can remarry. Yes. And the best way I know to answer that question is to spend some time with two New Testament passages. There are eight passages in the New Testament pertinent to this subject. But if we look at two of them, I think we get what we need. So let's start in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to go ahead and turn there. And we're going to go through some of the exchange between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 19. Starting in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. The question was posed to Jesus, verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, Jesus had already taught on this subject. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. I don't know if they knew what his answer had been before they asked this question or not. But this was a long-standing question, as I think most of us know. The Pharisees followed the teachings of Hillel. The Sadducees followed the teachings of Shammai. And these two rabbis had taught totally different things about when you can divorce. Hillel interestingly, took the far more liberal position. He said a man can divorce his wife for even spoiling his food. Shammai said, no, 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 no. She has to be guilty of adultery before you can divorce her. And it all centered on the passage in Deuteronomy 24 where Moses had permitted the certificate of divorce and he had said that a man may divorce his wife if he finds some uncleanness in her. What was that uncleanness? That was what the disagreement was over. So they bring this question. This puzzling question that everybody had different answers on and and they thought Jesus would flop or hoped he would flop like they were maybe flopping. But his answer 
I'm sure it was unexpected, provided they hadn't heard what he taught before. But in verse 5, verses 4 and 5, he quotes from Genesis. God joined them together. The two shall become one flesh. And then in verse 6, he says, so then, in other words, in light of what God did at the beginning, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, what? Let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. What is you know what? This is one of those things. It wasn't until I really dug in to figure out for myself what the Bible really teaches on this subject that some of these things began to jump out at me. And this was one of them. What's Jesus's first answer? They come and they say, is it OK to divorce your wife for just any reason? And he says, well, let's go back to the beginning. God made one man, one woman. He brought them together and uh, they become one flesh. God made them one flesh. So in light of that. What God has joined together, what? Which is Jesus' way of saying what? Is it okay to divorce Jesus for just any reason? Jesus' first answer is what? No. Don't divorce. That's where the Son of God began to answer that question. Don't divorce. Malachi 2.16, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. We're supposed to keep our promises. And divorce, except for a very special circumstance, which we will talk about momentarily, is a breaking of a promise. It's a breaking of a covenant. And that's no small thing to God. Jesus begins right there. Don't. Well, they are aghast, or they're struck by this answer at least. And so they immediately say in verse 7, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? I mean, you're saying don't divorce. We can look at the law of God right here in Deuteronomy 24, and it says the procedure by which a divorce can occur. How do you reconcile what Moses said with what you're saying? Good question. Jesus corrects their terminology, number one. They say Moses commanded to give a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, verse 8, uh, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses Allowed. He permitted. And he permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. You know, a hard rock doesn't yield. A rock, something that's hard, doesn't yield. A hard heart does not yield. It does not submit. The Jews had come out of Egypt with apparently very low standards. And God knew, far better than any of us ever would, that a national metamorphosis in beliefs and behavior was not going to happen overnight. So God suffered long. That's what love does. He suffered long with the Jewish people on this point. And it is interesting. A brother pointed out to me a few years ago. I had never noticed that. But it is interesting. When was Deuteronomy, when was, when was that given to the people? Okay, after the first generation died, after they'd wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, right? The law had been given at Sinai, and it hadn't said a word about divorce. Not a word. But after 40 years, during which Stephen tells us they were even carrying their idols around with them, there was still rebellion among them. After 40 years, then God adds this through Moses. All right, for now, you may. Interesting. But Jesus says, verse 8, and we don't want to miss this. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, what? It was not so. In the beginning, marriage was monogamous. It was heterosexual. And it was permanent. In the beginning, 
Divorce was never offered as an option. It was never even alluded to as the possibility. And when Jesus first answered the question, that's where he began. And brother, that's where we need to begin. You're thinking about getting married? All right. Are you going into this viewing divorce even as an option? Let's, let's have these conversations with our children, with young people, whoever's considering it. But Jesus isn't finished with the question. There is one more thing to answer. Verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. Jesus does allow divorce and remarriage to a different person on one condition. If the person initiating the divorce did so because of sexual immorality on the part of the other. If the innocent party divorced the guilty party for sexual immorality, then the innocent party may remarry. Well, what is sexual immorality? The Greek word is parneia, P-O-R-N-E-I-A. It's where we get the first part of pornography. And it means unlawful sexual intercourse. This would for sure include heterosexual intercourse, and I am fairly certain it would also include homosexual. And since the Bible mentions it, bestial. I don't want to linger, but the Bible talks about those things. On the basis of sexual immorality, Jesus said the innocent party may divorce the guilty party. If they divorce for reasons other than sexual immorality and marry another, what does Jesus say in verse 8? He says they commit adultery. What is adultery? Adultery is voluntary sexual intercourse between a married man and a woman, not his wife, or between a married man and a man, married woman and a man, not her husband. In other words, adultery is sexual immorality, but it's a subset of sexual immorality because in order for adultery to occur, at least one of the parties must be what? Married. All adultery is sexual immorality, but not all sexual immorality is adultery. Why does Jesus choose adultery here? Because he wants us to notice this very important specific point. If I divorce for reasons other than sexual immorality and I go and I marry another, I commit adultery. I can't commit adultery unless someone is married. And Jesus tells me which one is married in Mark chapter 10, verse 11. If I go and I marry another, having been in a divorce that did not involve, having divorced for reasons other than sexual immorality as a husband, I will commit adultery against my previous, my wife. This, this is the catch. This is the important point. I will be violating a marriage covenant. The civil law says we're not married. But because there was not sexual immorality, God says you are married. Paul states unequivocally in 1 Corinthians 7.11, a husband is not to divorce his wife and vice versa. He reinforces this point. There's only one circumstance under which God permits that and permits it to be followed with remarriage. And it's the one circumstance he permits himself. Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, God said to his betrothed people, the nation of Israel, he said to Hosea of her, Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. She used to be my wife, but she's not anymore. I've divorced her. Why? 
Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. He spoke in Jeremiah of the same thing. I have divorced the nation of Israel because she's guilty of sexual immorality. She's following after her other lovers, the other idols and the nations. So what God permits himself, he permits us. Let's take a look at another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting in verse 10. First Corinthians seven, beginning in verse 10. Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But if she does depart, we're in verse 11, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 10, Paul says, I'm going to command to the married. Anybody says, not I, but the Lord. Now, what's he mean by that? Boy, this used to confuse me. Verses 10 and 12 really confused me. What does he mean, I, not the Lord? Well, he's not saying these commands he's offering don't originate with him, although that's true. He's not saying he's not commanding them because he is. What Paul is saying here, and the context bears this out, he's saying, it's I, not I, but the Lord. In other words, what I'm about to share with you, the Lord, Jesus Christ, has already commanded. What you're going to read here in verses 10 and 11 is exactly the same thing and in complete harmony with, and it's the natural outgrowth of what he already taught, what we just looked at. And that's why then in verse 12, he goes on to say, but this next thing, I, not the Lord, not that the Lord's not behind what I'm saying, not that I'm making this up. That's not true at all. But I'm going to talk about things now that Jesus didn't talk about when he was here on earth. Both are inspired. Both are from God. But the first one first came from Jesus Christ himself. This next one is coming from me. Let's take up the first one. Verse 10, a wife is not to depart from her husband. What's depart mean? I remember John teaching downstairs on this in 1993. And he told us, depart means divorce. And I argued with him. I don't see that saying divorce. Well, I needed to study some more. This means divorce. It is the exact same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about divorce. The word depart is referring to a divorce. Notice verse 11. But even if she does depart, let her remain what? Unmarried. To depart is to find yourself unmarried. And then he immediately follows it up with, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. To divorce and depart are synonymous terms. Well, why does Paul do that? Why does he just say divorce both times? Well, depart is very naturally connected with divorce because in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 and 2, the law of Moses said, 
If a man found some uncleanness in his wife and he decided to divorce her, he would hand her a certificate of divorce, he would send her out of the house, and she would depart. She departed because of the divorce. To depart was to divorce. So Paul is saying here in verse 10, a wife is not to divorce, depart from her husband. But, verse 11, even if she does, Oh, well, then that means it must be okay. No, it doesn't mean it's okay. He just said she's not supposed to do it. Why does he say that? Because Paul knew that people don't always do what they're supposed to do. That there were going to be Christians who were going to divorce their spouses for reasons other than sexual immorality. And then there was going to be the question, what do I do? Paul says, in this situation, here's what you do. Let her remain unmarried. Or else... Go back to her first husband. If a divorce is not for sexual immorality, Jesus said any remarriage is going to bring about adultery. So if you find yourself in a position where you divorce somebody or were divorced for reasons other than sexual immorality among Christians, seek to be reconciled or with God's help remain unmarried is what Paul is saying. But he knows that's not the only situation that brethren may find themselves dealing with. So in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I, not the Lord. Here's what I have to say. And this is from the Spirit. Jesus didn't talk about it. If any brother has a wife who does not believe. See, when Jesus gave those commands about marriage and divorce and remarriage, who was he talking to? He was talking to Jews, right? And these were God's people. So you had a man and a woman who were both part of God's covenant people. So the commands that Jesus gave concerned two covenant people and the commands Paul just reiterated concerned two covenant people. But what if one of them is part of God's covenant people and the other isn't? What now? Paul says, all right, I'm going to address that because Jesus' commands didn't touch on that. Here's what you do. The early church would have been probably had a number of people who came in and they were already married when they came into the Lord and they obeyed, but their spouse didn't. What are you going to do? Paul says, if your spouse, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, don't what? Don't divorce. Let's reread that at the end of verse 12. If she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a husband and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Roman and Jewish women both could divorce. So it doesn't matter which gender. But if you're a Christian and you find yourself married to a non-Christian, you came into the Lord that way. Don't divorce if your spouse is willing to stay with you. Now, I don't want to get off topic here too much, but I do. I think this is really worth noting. Why would Paul have to tell these brethren, if you find yourself married to a non-Christian, don't divorce them? Why would he have to tell them, don't divorce them? Why would that even come up? Think about that. Why would that even come up? God has always taught that his people are supposed to marry his people. So here you've now, you've become one of his people, and you're married to someone who's not one of his people, and you know that God wants Christians married to Christians, so what's the natural thought that starts coming to your mind? Maybe to serve the Lord, I need to get out of this marriage. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. In this case, no. If they're willing to stay in the marriage, 
keep the marriage together. And he actually offers some justification for that in verse 14, but we don't have to talk, we don't have time to talk about it right now. But in verse 15, if the unbeliever does depart, in other words, if they insist upon the divorce and they initiate the divorce, what should the Christian do? Let him depart. You're not under obligation to stop that divorce. Verse 15, a brother or sister is not under bondage. In such cases, but God has called us to peace. A lot's been made of that statement. You're not under bondage. It's been argued, well, that must mean then that, uh, that you're no longer married, right? And I can understand, I mean, I myself, I, I thought that might be right for some time. I mean, after all, in this very chapter, verses 27 and in verse 39, Paul uses the word bound to refer to marriage. So if bound is marriage and you're no longer bound, you're not under bondage, that must mean you're not married. And over in Romans chapter 7, verse 2, he used bound to refer to married there too. So if bound means married, which it clearly does in those passages, not under bondage must mean there's no longer a marriage, but there's a problem with that. And I know a lot of us find Greek as boring as can be. You'd rather watch paint dry, but sometimes it's helpful. Even Richard Riggins, who wasn't a big fan of Greek, told me once, but sometimes it's necessary. When Paul used bound to refer to marriage, he used the Greek word deo, D-E-O. When he says not under bondage here, the word for bondage is a completely different word. It's dulao. The word for bound referring to marriage has to do with duty. An obligation. Because marriage is a duty and an obligation. But this per term, not under bondage, this has to do with slavery. Paul is saying, if you find yourself now, you become a Christian, you come into the church, and your spouse didn't follow with you, don't divorce them if they're willing to stay. But if they want to leave the marriage, if they want to divorce you, you're not under obligation. You are not a slave to try to hold this marriage together when they want to leave. You are not at their mercy. One author put it this way. Paul is not saying that the believer is no longer bound by his marriage covenant that he made with the unbeliever. He only means that the believer is not under compulsion, as a slave would be, to remain at all costs, to fulfill his marital responsibilities. The Christian does not have to force himself upon the unbeliever who is bent on leaving. He does not have to fight the unbeliever's decision in order to maintain the union. If such a course of action were required, it would indeed it would indeed reduce the believer to a form of slavery, and it also would not be very peaceful. Can you imagine the fights? No, no, we're not supposed to divorce. Don't, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. And you're following them. You're calling them on the phone, trying to keep this divorce from happening because you feel obligated before God to keep it together because you know how important marriage is to God. And Paul says, no, no. If an unbeliever wants to get out of the marriage, you may leave them and you are not under obligation to beat your heart out trying to keep the thing together if they are bent on leaving. And notice how Paul finishes it out. There in verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to what? To peace. What's that have to do with the previous statement? Well, everything, if we understand it right, you're not under obligation to fight for this marriage if the unbeliever insists on leaving you. God's called you to peace. God loves a peacemaker. 
you may let them go and do so in good conscience before God. Not that you'll enjoy it. Not that it will make you happy. But God will not hold you accountable for that divorce. So what can we draw from what we've studied so far? Four groups have a right to marry in the Bible. Those who've never been married. Those who have been widowed. The innocent party who has divorced his or her spouse for sexual immorality. And those who are being reconciled. These four groups, the Bible says, may remarry. We have no biblical authority to allow, to smile upon, to participate in any other kinds of marriage. One hard question here then. What do I do if I find myself in a situation where while I was a Christian, I divorced my spouse or got divorced for reasons other than sexual immorality and I went and got remarried. What do I do? Well, if you were to ask me that question privately, I'd have a few questions to ask. And I will admit to you, this stuff does get hard. We dare not make excuses. But I will admit, some of these things get awfully tangled. One brother has said repeatedly that this issue is the first and second most difficult subject we face. And I would agree with that. One other man said, I feel unable to deal with some of the cases, even in a way that is satisfactory to myself. And in any case, I feel humbled and weak by the gravity of the situation. I would say a hearty amen to that. I will tell you what I hope I would do if I were to ever find myself in that situation. And I don't expect to find myself in that situation. God help me. If while a Christian I did that or found myself in that situation, here are my thoughts. Number one, a river does not rise above its source. God does not grandfather sin into righteousness. Doing what is wrong does not suddenly grant me privileges I wouldn't have had if I'd done what's right. God says divorce and remarriage may happen when the divorce is for sexual immorality. If I don't have that to go on, then I here is what I believe I would have to do. I would use these two passages would guide me. In the book of Ezra, chapters 9 and 10, Nehemiah finds out that the Jewish men have been marrying women who are followers of idols. The law of Moses specifically in Deuteronomy 7, 2, and 3 prohibited that. You will not marry these these people from these other nations, and they will not marry into you unless they have a chain of faith. Because it's not about nationality or blood. It's about faith. It was decided that they would end those marriages. Those marriages had begun on an ungodly footing, and they were not okay just because they'd been going on many years, and they weren't okay even though there were children. Ezra chapter 10, verse 3, they decided to separate, quote, according to the law. Ezra chapter 10, verse 11, we are, quote, going to do his will. Separate yourselves. It had begun on an ungodly footing, and it was still ungodly. You say, well, what about those children? 
That man would still have an obligation to love those children, provide for those children, take care of those children. But God did not sign off on him sharing a bed with that woman. John the Baptist came to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas's brother, Philip, was in a position of authority east of him. And Philip was married to Herodias. Herodias and Herod were kind of sweet on each other. So Philip divorced Herodias so that Herod and Herodias could get married. The law specifically said you shall not uncover your brother's nakedness. This was in violation of God's law. So what did John the Baptist say? Well, you shouldn't have done it, but it's okay now. You went ahead and made a new marriage, and you know, it was it was a marriage, so it's okay now. No. John the Baptist said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Yes, there was, a, there was a divorce in the eyes of the law and a remarriage in the eyes of the law, but that doesn't make it okay. God said that marriage was not okay, and Herod, it's still not okay, and John ended up losing his head over it. This is how serious this is. And notice, it is not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. She is still his wife. These are the passages that would guide me. This may be why Jesus said what he did in Matthew 19, that some have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Not that they've emasculated or castrated themselves, but they have chosen to live as unmarried people for the sake of the kingdom. This is a hard situation. And sometimes, and I'll steal a quote from Rick, I've used it about a bazillion times, sometimes things in the Bible are not hard to understand, they're just hard to swallow. But we've had such good lessons this weekend from some of these brothers. We need to have our sights set on heaven. And there is no loss, there is no hardship, there is no sacrifice that we will regret if we make it for the Lord. When he returns, we will not regret it. Let's stick with the Bible, brethren, and let's not go beyond what is written.